0: Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective. 2020 on Vision. And there are few names that have been as courageous in Australia's culture wars as the name Lyle Shelton. He's best known to Vision listeners, leading the Australian Christian Lobby. For five years, Lyle was Managing Director His rise to prominence was because of his dogged refusal to back down on Christian principles as the present-day cultural and sexual revolution began to dismantle what most of us would say is common-sense reality. During the 2017 same-sex marriage postal plebiscite, he became the most prominent voice of the No Campaigns Coalition for Marriage, And for some context there, his public leadership began in local government in his hometown, the city of Toowoomba, as long as 20 years ago. More recently, after missing a Senate seat with Corey Bernardi's Australian Conservatives, he's been relatively quiet. That is, until now. Now he's released a behind-the-scenes, revealing insight into how some of the biggest changes in our culture have happened. It is a fascinating read. And when you read what's happened behind the scenes, you'll say, you must be kidding. But Lyle Shelton's new book is aptly entitled I Kid You Not, Notes from 20 Years in the Trenches of the Culture Wars. I must say, a special welcome to 2020 to Lyle Shelton. Thanks very much, Neil. Uh, Lyle, the book, congratulations on it. And uh, I know that there's media... Uh, That is saying, uh, you've got to be kidding, Uh, none of this can be true uh, because you've unleashed here the facts of what's happened behind the scenes and already there's reaction in the mainstream media and from political figures saying, uh, you know, this is ridiculous what you've written.
1: Well... if only it was, Neil. Um, look, the, These are stories that some of them I've been wanting to tell for 20 years that go, as you said in your introduction, right back to my time as a young fledgling councillor on the Toowoomba City Council. Uh, I, I guess in my time as an activist, I've seen terrible public policy come to pass uh, because good people have not wanted to fight the prevailing culture. They found it easier to go with the flow, and, and suddenly we've seen you know, laws that harm particularly women uh, and children, but but all of us, and uh, I wanted to, to tell the stories of how these things had come about, e- even through you know a simple little council like in Toowoomba, a you know, regional city where good people could have opposed things like legal brothels and strip clubs, but, but didn't want to, and so bad things have happened, and, and that's played out over 20 years, and, and so I, I chart that right through to my ACL days. In fact,
0: before we get into uh, the, uh, the the really sort of nitty-gritty, uh, even exciting details of your book, let's just focus on those early days as a Toowoomba City councillor. And as you say, a, a fledgling councillor, you were a young man, and uh, you were just as inclined as anyone else to be influenced by those who were lobbying you on what were very important issues around the time. Issues of prostitution, there were issues of strip clubs, uh, there was the issue of uh, Toowoomba being the city that was almost going to be the the guinea pig for actually having uh, sewerage pumped into drinking water. Uh, supposedly, in a refined way, and at that point, you discovered that there was a lot of uh, peer pressure, propaganda, false ideas that were being uh, told to the Toowoomba community, and uh, they were going along with it at that time.
1: Yeah, this is a theme of the whole book, Neil. You know, before this term "cancel culture" became a thing in in the last few months. Um, I found myself being cancelled over the last 20 years, and, and right from the get-go as a young councillor, um, I was elected in the year 2000, I was 30 years old, I had a three-year-old daughter at the time, and the state government was, uh, under Peter Beattie, the former Labor Premier, was legalising brothels, and that affected local councils because we were told that we had to approve these brothel applications. And I said, well, hang on, what if our city doesn't want a brothel? And I, and I thought about my 3-year-old daughter, and I thought, I don't want her growing up in a society where the state government says that it's a dignified, so-called safe occupation just like serving fries at McDonald's for you to go and work in a state-sanctioned brothel. So so that was one of the battles and and and, and I, I talk about that in the book and you know reveal some of the behind the scenes things that went on to try and shut me up Um, and even though people agreed they just said no no just go with the flow blame the state government we don't have to kick
0: up a stink here in Toowoomba and you say in your book with regard to some of those earlier situations you discovered that you were being swept along in a confusing stream swirling with excitement groupthink propaganda and peer pressure. And I imagine <laughs> You've that read the book, Neil. <laughs> I have read the book, and I'm encouraging listeners to get a hold of this book. It'll be an historic uh, inclusion on your bookcase. Uh, but uh, but with that sort of uh, idea about what was happening in those early days, even in just mm. local government, yep. that has translated into what's happened nationally.
1: Well, well, that quote you just read, that was from the chapter um, that you referred to a minute ago for, about uh, whether we should drink recycled sewage water. And, and I, I wanted to include a chap, that, that chapter because I felt it was very important. People might think of me as someone who's campaigned on social or moral issues, um, and, and I make no apology for that. Of course I have. But for me, truth is truth. And when I found myself in the middle of that campaign back in 2006 where the city of Toowoomba was running out of water, as was Brisbane and the Gold Coast and the Sunshine Coast, in fact most of the eastern seaboard was in that terrible millennium drought, and we were told that um, our only choice as a city was to recycle our sewage water and pump that into the, the dam uh, you know, in a purified form. Now, now, you know, I had lots of briefings from big companies and things that came through, and, and I, I believed that the technology could work. But what I discovered was that no one in the world was doing this, and yet we were being told uh, what essentially was a lie, uh, that cities all over the world were doing this, that Disneyland was doing it in Orange County. Um, and, and so therefore, we should go along with it and do what our elites said. They were telling us climate change meant our dams would never fill again. We were told this as part of the 2006 Toowoomba water debate. This is before all this stuff became you know what it is now. Malcolm Turnbull, uh, who was, had just been appointed by John Howard as the new water minister, came to the city and said, you must do this, Uh, there is no alternative. Now I knew we had alternatives that hadn't been investigated and I also knew that this was not being done all over the world as we were being told and when I presented those facts uh, in the council meetings, I was not very popular.
0: And so what happens is, whether it's the local council, whether it's the state government or whether it's the federal government, Oftentimes those elected political leaders that we're entrusting with our future are not listening to what experts are saying and they are being railroaded by people who are pushing their own ideology or just going along with the group think.
1: Well, well, that's right. Or, or they're, they're um, constructing things to suit their agenda. So it suited someone's agenda to... Uh, have one city in the world at least, you know, recycle their sewage for drinking. If they could get one guinea pig case up, they could perhaps sell it to other cities. But of course, you know, the, the population have got to be confident with this. And there were experts like Professor Peter Collignon uh, from Canberra who were saying, well, well hang on, you know, if, if something goes wrong in this technology, you know, you could have a disaster on your hand. And and uh, we were being told that this was already being done, therefore we should do it. Well, it wasn't already being done anywhere. We are actually being asked to be the guinea pig and, and the thing that for me that that's the important thing this is part of the theme of the book is that truth matters and you know jim wallace my great uh, mentor former boss at acl and and a good friend who kindly wrote the forward uh, he said that uh, we've forgotten that throughout history truth always has to be fought for and i've found that so much of our public policy um whether it's in the moral or social issues or whether it's You know, environmental issues are often driven by lies and we need to say, hang on, wait a minute, let's just look at the facts here.
0: And uh, that's not always welcome in the public discourse. And when you talk about the recycled sewage issue, uh, you say in your book, you know, if there was – everything was running right, just as the experts might tell you. But then there's one day when something technically fails and then everything else goes through the system – the whole thing fails because then you've got people who are drinking uh, the perhaps raw sewage. And I'm just, I'm just focusing on this for a moment here because every time we have progressive legislation that's going through our parliaments, whether they're state or federal, uh, there's all, always lots of conditions, uh, all the things that will be your protections. And when you talk about the sewage issue, and I'm just drawing an alignment here, uh, when there's a failure everybody suffers and what technically happens when we're talking about all of these other big moral issues when there's a failure everybody suffers and that's what we're seeing today on so many areas
1: well, well it is and and that was the concern that professor peter colonyon uh, had mm. uh, now look I, I believe that the technology could could do it you know i think it was very feasible um What the problem was, as I said, is that we were told it was being done all over the world. Um, To this day, uh, almost 20 years down the track, uh, I'm not aware of any city in the world that has um, reverse osmosis, um, ultraviolet filtration uh, of water from their sewage plant, and then is putting that back into an impoundment, uh, like a dam, which is what Toowoomba was being asked to do. Uh, It was a world first, and yet uh, we were being lied to and told, you should accept this because it's being done all over the world. And hey, because climate change means your dams will never fill again or or unlikely to fill like they used to, uh, therefore you as a city must do this. And yet Peter Beattie, the Premier of Queensland at the time, was saying this is the Armageddon solution and he was not having a bar of it for Brisbane, yet he expected Toowoomba to do this. Now that made no sense because their water crisis was worse than ours. So a lot of things didn't add up. Malcolm Turnbull's comments didn't add up and uh, I was to. Uh, We we actually ended up um, having a a plebiscite (laughs) back in 2006, and uh, Malcolm Turnbull and I were on the opposite side of that plebiscite. Uh, We were to face off 10 years later in another plebiscite, which is also
0: detailed in the book. Wow. Well, this is an important way to start our conversation because, as you say, Lyle Shelton, there's more to uh, the history that you've had in the battles with the culture war than just the marriage issue, although we will get to the marriage issue and Mm. the transgender agenda because you were warning us well before the the plebiscite that this was coming upon us and uh, for listeners listening to our conversation, they'll know it's here. Our special guest this hour is Lyle Shelton and we're talking about his new book. It's called, I kid you not, Notes from 20 Years in the Trenches of the Culture Wars. And just in case you're wondering, is there really a culture war in Australia? Let me bring you to the very opening chapter of your book, Lyle Shelton. Uh, You didn't start with the marriage plebiscite. You didn't start with some of the big issues that still confront Australians today. But you took us back to a moment in Australia's history that will forever be a very controversial moment. And that is the time when the bombing of the Australian Christian Lobby headquarters in Canberra was dismissed as nothing to see here. Let's go back to that bombing time. You've described it powerfully in the first chapter of your book. Uh, that is one of those stories that when you say, I kid you not, people will be surprised to hear the facts. Mm.
1: Yeah, look, this is uh, was a traumatic time of... Uh life for myself and the staff at ACL it was three days before Christmas 2016 and uh, I was on holidays up here in Queensland with my family actually we'd had a very busy year and um, I got a phone call from Martin Isles actually who's who's now managing director and uh, he'd been alerted by security at the office that uh, there'd been an incident there and of course uh, we we now know that a a very disturbed Uh, young man who who turned out to be a a same-sex marriage political activist uh, went to the office with a van laden with gas cylinders uh, in an attempt in what was an attempted suicide bombing of the office now he survived um, with horrific injuries uh, but uh, more than a hundred thousand dollars worth of damage was was done to the office and and i guess the distressing thing for us neil as as you said was uh, the next day, the Australian Federal Police held a media conference and said there is no political, religious or ideological motivation uh, for this incident at the ACL office. Now, those words were very important because that was their way of trying to rule out uh, any sort of sense of, of terrorism. But uh, really what had happened was this was Australia's first uh, you know, terrorist uh, uh, bombing of, of, uh, motivated
0: by political motivation. And they made that deliberation and made that statement based on an eight-minute interview with the bomber who had made his way to get some medical treatment because uh, it did appear to be a failed suicide attempt. Yep. But in eight minutes, that was the entire investigation in which they said, nothing to see here. This is not terror-related. This is not ideologically related. And, uh, and of course, things came around and the truth eventually came out, but a long, long time later.
1: And this is the story of my life, Neil. I'm still waiting for other aspects of truth that I've detailed in the book to come out. But um, it, it took six months. But um, once uh, the the uh, fellow who who committed the act uh, had recovered from his his wounds enough, he was um, he was charged with arson and property damage serious serious enough charges. Um, and he appeared in the act magistrate court that was the first time we got his name so that was um in about may um the, the incident happened in december so i went and googled his name and straight away discovered that uh, this guy you know had a history of same-sex political activism he'd uh, lived in america for a time he'd, he'd been a campaigner uh, against um the the Um, those who were trying to preserve the definition of marriage in California under under Proposition 8. Uh, So he had a long history. He'd worked for a Democrat um, politician over there who was a a, a gay man himself. So, you know, for the police to say the next day, you know, political, religious, or ideological motivation, how they could not have known that history, surely they had Google on the night of the bombing. Um, It it wasn't hard to discover this guy's history. Um, He'd also... Um, in, in the interview that the police conducted uh, in the emergency room at Canberra Hospital just before they put him into an induced coma, he said, "I don't like the ACL. You know, religion's are failed. He didn't care if he damaged our building. Uh, this all came out in the transcripts um, uh, of the police interview, which uh, the Channel Seven journalist Cameron Price managed to to get a hold of um, from the uh, you know through the court process. Yet, yet the police chose to withhold all that information." Uh, the, the very next day, they had that information and they chose to tell the Australian people no political, religious or ideological motivation. Uh, I remain deeply uh, disappointed by that to this day. The police have never apologised for that. Um, they still maintain that. Uh, they've maintained that at Senate inquiries since. And um, I think that's it, it's a travesty and it's a travesty for the staff of ACL who had to endure the trauma of having their workplace uh, bombed.
0: I remember those days and people were on edge because of the possibility of some form of Islamic terrorism and so the idea of a LGBT based terror incident was not in the thinking of people. And so they were quick to dismiss that idea because if we were talking terrorism, it had to be Islamic. But this sort of attack really is a similar style attack to what you would have got in a uh, in an Islamic terror attack. The idea of driving a van up to the headquarters... Uh, which, as I recall, uh, and from your book, uh, you know, police said was just accidental. Accidental that the van arrived uh, in an obscure part of Canberra to, to park in front of your ACL headquarters and then detonate uh, a series of gas cylinders. But this idea that people were expecting Islamic terror, but they were not expecting an attack like that to come from an ideologically uh, uh, grounded group like the LGBT uh, lobby...
1: Yeah, look, uh, it was a big, big shock. I never expected it, and to this day, I don't think Australia's ever had a uh, an Islamist bombing. We've had some some knife attacks and and some terrible, you know, incidents um, where there's been loss of life. Uh, but the only you know bombing or attempted suicide bombing, to my knowledge, has been the one on, on our office. And um, you know, the, the police knew later that uh, this guy had had Googled Australian Christian Lobby, um, our staff checked once we got his name, um, checked that um, he'd actually been on our database, so he'd been watching what we'd been saying. And and remember, 2016 was the year that ACL, it was the year before the marriage plebiscite, but it was the year we were very prominent. We were one of the only groups in the country trying to sound the alarm about the consequences of same-sex marriage and the safe schools agenda. That really uh, burst onto the public scene um, after months and months of trying to get people to understand this gender-fluid uh, issue. So we'd been we'd been in the media. We'd been called bigots and homophobes by the Greens. The Greens had got up in Parliament and called us a hate group, uh, and, and this this worried me at the time because I thought if if someone out there is a bit disturbed and you know triggered by by political leaders from the Greens political party calling us a hate group and bigots. Um, you know, what would someone logically want to do as a response to that sort of rhetoric in the Australian Parliament? Uh, so um, I was very disturbed um, when when the bomb went off um, because straight away to my mind came the recollection, recollection of what Adam Bant and uh, Senator Robert Sims had been saying about us uh, in the Parliament just weeks uh, before that incident.
0: We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Our special guest is Lyle Shelton. We're talking about what appears in his new book. His new book is called I Kid You Not, Notes from 20 Years in the Trenches of the Culture Wars. Let's take a call. Mel is on the line in Queensland. Hi, Mel. Welcome. Uh,
2: good morning. My point relating to the culture wars is what's happening internationally, and it's Influence on Australia. And I'd like um, Lyle to comment on I feel it's very disappointing and sad and concerning that the Australian government has yet had to sign up to the International Religious Freedom Network. I understand the United Uh, The United Kingdom and the Netherlands have signed up for this uh, network and I applaud what the uh, Americans are doing of uh, providing some leadership in this space and bringing to the public's attention the persecution of what is happening uh, of people of faith around the world and bringing those um, uh, countries and and so forth uh, to account. Lyle, if we could have your comment about uh, that International Religious Freedom Network,
1: please. Yeah, thanks, Mel. Um, I'm not aware of that network specifically. Um, It sounds like a a great initiative. What what I am aware of is um, the U.S. Congress have set up a body called the International Commission on Religious Freedom, and I've actually visited their office in Washington, D.C., and I know that some of our Australian parliamentarians have Considered whether the Australian Parliament should set up a similar body to shine a light on the persecution of 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 anyone of religious background around the world, but obviously Christians, because Christians are the most persecuted people group on the planet. Um, so, so Mel, yeah, it's it's a big issue, and I think Australia should do more. Um, it's an issue that we spent a lot of time at ACL on. I I didn't actually cover overseas persecution of, of Christians in, in the book I probably should have that would have been another chapter but uh, I'm right with you there Mel and there is more that we should do and uh, I, I would really like to see the Australian government um, you know pursue um, keeping you know freedom of speech and freedom of religion open because they are very much under threat particularly since the passing of uh, same-sex marriage and uh, it, unfortunately the Morrison government hasn't been able to deal
0: uh, with protecting the freedoms that have been lost as a result of that change Mel, thank you so much for your comment, your question. Our talkback line remains open on 1-800-316-316. We're coming up to news just a minute and a half away. Uh, Let me just take you to just uh, a quick comment about where the church is. We're going to be talking some more about these reflections, uh, these revelations about what's happened behind the scenes in the culture war. But you describe this idea of quietism. Mm. Uh, in the church that's something that we need to be aware of and somehow or other break out of that
1: absolutely look this book has come about as a result of grief and even a, a lament i have about the state of the church in australia and it has been easy just to sit on the sidelines of these debates a lot of christians don't even like the term culture war they think that's an aggressive militaristic term but uh it's a war it's a battle unborn babies are being killed women are being abused Officers have been bombed. Uh, There is a war going on and a battle for ideas and uh, we can't sit on the sidelines.
0: But let's talk about some of the issues as they are continuing to unfold and there are continued pushes in Australia today. The issues around abortion and around euthanasia. These have been part of the passion of your heart in doing the things that you do leading these issues.
1: Yeah, look, uh, one of the chapters in the book that I probably had a real burden to get out and I'm so pleased that I've been able to to write this and see it published is um, the chapter on human rights for the unborn. It's entitled Blood on our Medicare Cards and I haven't given an overview of the whole pro-life sort of movement or issue but I've chosen a particular uh, campaign that happened in 2008 when a very courageous senator from Tasmania by the name of Guy Barnett uh, got up in the parliament and moved a disallowance motion to disallow public funding money that's collected from your and my medicare levy which goes towards funding late term abortion now now senator barnett you know like me is pro life and, and realized that the australian public rightly or wrongly wrongly supports abortion but he wasn't trying to stop all of abortion uh, as much as we would like to to give women better choices, uh, he, he said, well, look, let's just look at a really extreme end of it. And um, so that caused all hell to break loose in the parliament. I can't tell you how emotive this issue gets. Uh, there was anger from uh, Guy's own side, the Liberal Party, uh, as well as the Labor Party, uh, but because he forced this issue, a Senate inquiry was held into Medicare funding of late-term abortion. Now we're talking post you know, 20 weeks here and whether or not the public should be forced, as we all are now, to pay to kill unborn babies uh, in the late stages of their fetal development. Um, so, so this actually got to a Senate inquiry. That was a miracle in itself. And what happened um, that day there, I I was tasked with going along and um, giving evidence on behalf of Australian Christian Lobby. We'd put in a submission. But as I was preparing for it, um, I I started reading through the submissions of the the pro-abortion groups that were turning up that day as well, just as part of background reading. And I discovered a submission from the Australian Reproductive Health Alliance, which essentially said that we need to retain Medicare funding for... um, late-term abortion, because if we don't, disabled babies will be born, and that will become a burden on the disability services budget. Now, I couldn't believe what I was reading. I nearly fell off my chair. I thought, that that's outrageous. That They're saying kill babies because they're disabled, because they're too expensive to look after. But it, it got worse, Neil. It got worse, because uh, this was on a Saturday night. I was at home preparing. I had, you know, a big pile of submissions on my lounge room um, chair, table, whatever. A few minutes later, I picked up another submission and I'm reading it and I'm thinking, I've read this before. And I got to the bit about disabled babies and I realised this was word for word from the Australian Reproductive Health Alliance submission. And I looked at the submission that I was reading and and that submission, which was identical to the radical pro-abortion group, which was advocating eugenics, this other submission was signed by 42 parliamentarians called the Parliamentary Group on Population and Development. That's a euphemism if ever you've heard it. It was a cut and paste. Um, they had duplicate. So here you had 42 parliamentarians saying, yes, we agree with killing unborn babies uh, that might be disabled because they're going to be too expensive to look after. So, so when I revealed this at the Senate inquiry a few days later, that caused a big stir.
0: So when you start to unpack the fine print, uh, sometimes people say, you know, read the fine print. There's a lot of fine print in the legislation that's presented to our politicians. And on the rights for the unborn, the revelations of politicians turning a blind eye to the evil of eugenics shocked you. Yep and it does make headlines but not everybody's across all of those ethics and no. what's getting reported is not necessarily reflecting the facts well the media wouldn't report it
1: neil and, and this this annoyed me and you're right you know those 42 parliamentarians most of them had no idea that they had put their name to this. Now, they knew they were members of the Parliamentary Group on Population and Development, but what they didn't know is that the Radical Australian Reproductive Health Alliance uh, had co-opted them into their radical agenda. And, and probably the only person who really knew was Senator Claire Moore, who, who was a Labor senator for Queensland at the time and the chair of the group. Uh, I think she knew... Uh, but when the parliamentarians found out, we re- we wrote to them all and um, they said, oh, no, no, we don't agree with that. You know, that's terrible. Um, a couple of them resigned from the parliamentary group on population and development, including Senator Alan Eggleston from Western Australia, who himself was a, a, a short-statured man. Uh, he was born a midget. Uh, brilliant man. He's a gynecologist, but, um, a, a, you know, a midget. Uh, now he is the sort of person who would have been a prime target uh, for abortion because he was disabled, you know, that, that would have been picked up in his mother's womb. So he resigned in disgust from the parliamentary group on population and development. But do you think we could get the media to cover this? Um, Angela Shanahan wrote about it in the Australian. There was very little else, but um, my good friend, Senator Ron Boswell, Senator Barnaby Joyce and others got up in the parliament and made powerful speeches uh, about this. Senator Boswell said, this is something from the Hitler regime uh, and, and he's right. And, and yet to this day, nothing has been done about this guy. Barnett's inquiry was swept under the carpet. And you and I and every Australian taxpayer continues to pay for the killing of unborn babies, whether we like it or not. We have no way of opting out and being complicit. That's why the chapter is called Blood on our Medicare Cards. <laughs>
0: Well, it sounds like a conspiracy theory and it sounds like it's, you know, this is so weird and uh, off the planet that how could this be real? And what you're describing to us is what you've described in your new book, that this is the reality of what goes on behind the scenes. And unless somebody reads the fine print... All sorts of things find their way into our legislation and that affects the way our lives and the lives of our children and the lives of our grandchildren are going to be uh, affected. Uh, When you talk about, uh, interesting, you know, we're talking about here uh, eugenics. Uh, The idea of abortion, because this is the sort of thing that comes to light when these discussions are had around this legislation. Also, the issue then of euthanasia, which has been on the table. It's already law in Victoria and in Western Australia, and it's on the move around other states and territories. Uh, These things are all connected because there's a similar agenda behind them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it's a death wish that our society has. And I'll just, just put, I'll come to youth and age, but just on, on the abortion thing, I, I know we focus on disabled babies. Just remember that those who promote abortion, like Jackie Trad here in Queensland and, and, and others all around the country, that it's bad enough to want to kill babies because they're disabled, but they want them to be able to be killed for any reason right up to birth. And, and that's what's happening, and, and that's what we need to be aware of. But on the euthanasia, yes, there's a chapter on that, Neil. And um, one of the scary things, you know, as this issue gets more and more prominence, and, and again, Jackie Trad is pushing it, the former Deputy Premier of Queensland is pushing it in the lead-up to the Queensland election uh, in October – um, but in Canada, where they've had uh, legalized euthanasia now, just for a, you know, just for a few short years, they're starting to actually cost how much money the health system can save as a result of euthanizing patients so that they give up their hospital beds. Now, um, so I quote um, in the book from the University of Calgary. It says, "Medical assistance in dying." Now, that's again a euphemism. Words matter in in these culture wars. They use words to distort the reality, so instead of talking about giving people a lethal injection <laughs> to medical assistance in dying, uh, could reduce annual healthcare spending across Canada by between $34.7 million and $138.8 million. Now, this is chilling in my mind, Neil, that university academics in Calgary, Canada, are now costing how much we can save by bumping people off early instead of giving them the proper palliative care. And, you know, I, I document in the book what the palliative care experts say. They say you don't need euthanasia. If people are given proper palliative care, the requests for a lethal injection virtually evaporate Um Yes, people are having bad deaths, but that's because we're not giving them proper care. Uh, Euthanasia advocates are exploiting that and saying, well, euthanasia is the answer. And now the bean counters are involved and saying, hey, we can save a truckload of money here.
0: And from the application of our Christian thinking, of our Christian ethics into these, uh, we would say that... Human lives matter. Mm. And so putting a cost on a human life, uh, that really is something we ought to be really, really concerned about. Hey, there's lots of listeners who've been leaving comments on our Facebook post today. Lyle, I want to run through a, a few of these and perhaps a, a brief uh, comment from you on some of these Richard says sadly the world is looking as bad as it is due to Christians allowing worldly and humanistic philosophies into their lives had we lived like Christ rolled up our sleeves loved one another and non-believers reached out and shared the gospel with love the world would look different what are your thoughts for Richard?
1: Oh, I think Richard's right um, I think and I say this in the last chapter of the book because I'm wanting to bring some hope in the midst of the situation, I think we have reduced the gospel to uh, seeing people saved and come to a relationship with Christ. Obviously, that's that's the start and that's crucial. We should never stop uh, preaching the gospel of personal salvation. But it doesn't end there. We're, we're, we are to bring Christ's kingdom to every area of life. That means where there's injustice on earth, our job is to bring Heaven to earth. Instead, we've been focused on getting out of earth into heaven instead of bringing heaven into these places. That's why we have unborn babies being killed. That's why we have women in prostitution. We've got hell on earth, and that hell has been ushered in through bad public policy in our parliaments. Angela
0: says, I don't think I'd call it war, it's sin. Folks can't deal with conflict. They expect some sort of utopia, and we're all supposed to agree with whatever the latest movement is. Although they're so entitled, they think you should get the best of everything simply because you're you. What are your thoughts for Angela?
1: Oh, look, Angela's right. I mean, we're the biggest me-centered generation. Um, We need to be other-centered, and we need to go to where... Uh, the pain and the injustice is and roll up our sleeves and and get involved. And and for some, that's going to mean getting involved in politics because you can love your neighbor, as the great theologian John Stott said, uh, not just by feeding the poor, yes, do that, but you can love your neighbor by
0: making sure bad public policy and bad laws aren't passed. Jenny says, our children are being fed false information as truth in their education. The generations ahead are going to be in a bigger battle than we face now if we don't fight back. What are your thoughts for Jenny?
1: Absolutely. And that's why I've written this book. I want to open people's eyes to how bad the lies have become, how much they have inculcated our our parliaments and the thinking of our elected leaders And we can only fight back by being educated. And so many people, Neil, have said since they've been reading the book how it's opened their eyes. Uh, That's what I'm really hoping will happen. We we can't fight back unless the eyes are open at the moment. We're sleepwalking uh, into disaster, and it's a disaster for our kids. Uh, I'm hopeful about the future. I think it can be turned around, but uh, we have to start now, and we have to get
0: active and not be passive. People on the left are uh, very much involved in uh, looking to influence and educate children, uh, those issues around safe schools and other names that have come to uh, these issues of influence on children. These are really prominent and they are still uh, all around the place. Look, in my time at ACL, Neil, there was
1: um, the issue that probably shocked me the most after abortion was the issue of safe schools. It came out of nowhere in 2015. It came onto our radar as a team. Uh, Some of my staff started showing me some of the posters that were being put around schools, a boy dressed in a girl's school uniform saying gender is not uniform. Uh, I, I just thought this is this is crazy. This won't go anywhere. Little did I know that this was to become a, a major flashpoint in the culture war. And we we spent a year trying to get the media to be interested. They just ignored everything we said about it. We put out press release after press release documenting this stuff. No one wanted to deal with it. Uh, I suppose five years down the track, it's great to see Mainstream journalists like Bernard Lane at the Australian newspaper now regularly reporting on this transgender issue and uh, safe schools and how damaging it is to children, giving them puberty blockers, uh, cross-sex hormones, and even surgery to minors um, for, for young people who are struggling in their minds about whether they're a boy or a girl. So there's some def- definite mainstream pushback. Five years ago when we first started raising this, uh, we were treated as, as the village idiots. We were dismissed. We were cancelled. Um, but now there's some mainstream traction. Still a long way to go. This has got such a hold um, in all areas of society, particularly education and government. Um, there's a long way to go, but there is some mainstream pushback coming from from even non-Christian sources.
0: The quality of journalism, you write a little about that when you're discussing the euthanasia debate. And uh, with regard to journalists, you say in a rush to champion progressive legislation, journalists rarely, if ever, investigate expert opinion that runs counter to political correctness or media bias. Mm. That almost sounds—it frustrates me. Unreal. I wrote
1: that um, uh, reflecting back on Andrew Denton, the celebrity, you know, ABC guy who's now you know, one of the main campaigners for euthanasia. He gave a speech at the Press Club in 2017. And he said, um, "Yeah, I've been all over the world. Euthanasia is working fine in Belgium and Holland and Oregon, um, and, and said there's no issues with it. I mean, a Google search would show that you know people um, who are mentally ill are being euthanized. A, a Dutch woman was held on the table by her family as a doctor gave her the lethal injection. There are horror stories after horror story. You know, twins who just wanted to die together used." euthanasia I mean it goes on and on and on the abuses of this thing. It's not uh, something for people who are terminally ill and intractable pain. The slippery slope uh, has got grease all over it and yet Andrew Denton gets up at the press club and says it works fine and it's safe and not one journalist interrogated him
0: about you know the howlers that can be discovered through a simple Google search. I imagine some of this goes back to what sort of university training or what sort of peers and mentors are training our journalists. But journalism uh, needs to have some major transformation, as does our political. Uh, Involvement, But uh, your thoughts here for a moment, because a lot of people will be thinking, well, you know, journalism happens uh, in social media as much as it does in uh, the the mainstream media that we talk about. What are your thoughts for people engaging in that space? Well, well,
1: I did a journalism degree back in uh, the late 80s, early 90s. That was my formal training, and I worked as a working journalist for six years with Rural Press Limited. Um, When I was studying journalism, we were told to be accurate, be accurate, and be accurate. But at the same time, all of our the humanities subjects around our journalism degree, around the technical subjects, were all you know history, sociology, politics. Everything was from a, a Marxist feminist point of view. So this has been inculcating the education system for a long time. And what Marxism does is obscures people's ability to be able to tell the truth anymore. And of course, cultural Marxism is now the dominant philosophy. We see it everywhere through Black Lives Matters, through to you know white privilege to. Uh, Feminism, every animating philosophy of our society is Marxist-based, and, of course, it's based on a big lie. And so we've lost our ability to understand the truth post-modernism now. You know, anyone's truth is is truth. Well, it doesn't work, and you can't build a society on that. And, of course, our journalists come from that worldview, and it's no wonder we can't trust them anymore.
0: Lyle, in my introduction, I said uh, since you uh, missed that Senate seat uh, with Cory Bernardi's outfit at the last federal election, uh, you've been a little bit quiet. Uh, I wonder whether that was an accuracy. Uh, you've been doing some political consultation. Uh, you've been working with uh, some political leaders. Uh, I'm even told that uh, there's some resistance to you joining the Liberal Party or the Liberal <laughs> National Party. Uh, what's Lyle Shelton doing today? Is there any insight here? Uh,
1: yeah, look, I've been fortunate. Um, I have had a quieter year, and, and that's been a good thing. Um, the last twenty w- years were were pretty busy, as uh, as the book uh, s- uh, spells out. But um, I've been doing a couple of days a week with um, my good friend Mark Robinson, uh, the member for ujiru in the Queensland State Parliament. Mark is a, is a terrific. Uh, uh, Advocate for the sort of causes that we're talking about today. A champion. He's been in the parliament over ten years, so it's been. One, and I've known him for a long time, so it's been great to help him. And uh, that's also helping me transition back into um, you know the the LNP. Um, I suppose I've been in purgatory uh, having run for a you know rival political party in the Australian Conservatives, and and I talk about why I did that uh, in the book. There's a chapter on that called Successful Failure. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been a quieter year. But look, I, I am uh, seeking to rejoin the LNP. I'm I'm just as committed as ever uh, to continuing to engage these areas, I really felt in leaving ACL after 10 years, love that organisation, so thrilled to see the way Martin and the team uh, are taking it uh, even to greater, much greater heights. Uh, But uh, I felt for me that um, I I needed to um, embed myself uh, back into mainstream politics and that's what I'm seeking to do. I'm involved in some political activism, um, a bit of work with Mark and I'm hoping to find my way back into the party and if there's an opportunity to run again in the future, um,
0: I'd like to do that. When I said there was some level of resistance uh, from the Liberal Party in having you as a member, uh, there seems to be a movement of Christian believers who are concerned about being involved in mainstream politics and uh, been trying to join the Liberal Party, and uh, some of them have been having a, a tough time doing that and and being held back. Any thoughts about what Christians are, how they're being received as they're trying to join political parties today?
1: Look, there's um, I have a, a lot of uh, friends who, who are Christians or, or just you know conservatives, not even necessarily Christians, but but many who are, uh, who are in the LNP. Um, when Corey Bernardi's um, party started, um, you know, a, a big group of us decided to go with him. Another big group decided, no, let's stay inside the LNP and and fight, you know, and work from the inside for the the values. And 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 incidentally, the LNP's. Platform uh, very much is is consistent with the sort of values that you and I have been talking about today. That the actual policy platform is, is very good. Now the the application of it sometimes has some problems, and I and I talk about that a bit in in the book. Um, but look, there's always going to be in any political party there are going to be um, contests for ideas and, and rival um, philosophies, and and even within a party, you know, John Howard. Talked about the party being a broad church. You know there is the so-called moderate faction. I don't like to call it moderate. I think supporting abortion is not a moderate, um, mm. you know, point of view. Supporting same-sex marriage that denies a child the right to the love of their mother or father. That's not a moderate position. So I hate the the use of the terminology. But in in politics, there's these terms moderates and conservatives, and and yet yeah, they exist within the LNP. Uh, I would be in the conservative wing. Um, I'm. I'm you know, I've been told that you know from next month I should be able to um, be readmitted to the party. Uh, I can understand them wanting to protect their brand. I was with with a rival party. Uh, you can't just you know swap brands all the time. I, I get that. Um, so I've served some time. I'm looking to contribute again. And uh, should, should uh, my application be successful, I'm keen to get back into um, LNP. I was in the National Party you know, 13 or 14 years ago when I was back here in Queensland. So I just think it's important to get involved. And, and all of us should be members of a political party and, and participate in our democracy. Because uh, as the book charts, a big part of the reason why we've seen this slide is because not enough people of goodwill and good morals and good virtues have actually been engaged while others have, and and they have run the show.
0: Well, Lyle, we have run out of time. There's still plenty we could talk about, but let me point listeners to get a hold of your new book, And it is a very important book to read. It's easy to read. It's well-written. It tells the story of what's happened over 20 years. Notes from 20 years in the trenches of the culture wars. And that's the culture wars here in Australia, what's happening in your community right now. Lyle's new book is called, I Kid You Not?, It's published by Conor Court Publishing, and they have a website, conorcourtpublishing.com.au. But if you simply Google the book, I kid you not, Lyle Shelton, you'll find it and you'll be able to get it wherever you're living right around Australia. Uh, Lyle, just great getting your insights. Uh, Let me just give a quick little update on our Facebook poll today, asking the question, do you think the culture war in Australia is changing Australia for better or worse? 5% say better. 95% of responders to that poll say the culture war is making things worse. Lyle Shelton, thank you so much for your update and for your insights and for sharing your heart with us on 2020. Thanks, Neil. I really appreciate you having me.
2: Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.